Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. This is Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. And we'll be sitting in judgment on Rishi Sunak's first year as Prime Minister, a year that's felt like 50. The Chief Executive of Amnesty International UK will be here to tell us what you can do to help those affected by the Israel Gaza crisis. Plus, have landlords managed to sabotage plans to ban no fault evictions? Hi Coco, how are you? I'm, I'm actually having, honestly, Nish, I'm having a really, I'm having a really great week, actually. Talk to me. Well, are you familiar with the Fat Bear Week? Uh, <laughs> are you what aware of that? The hell are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so, What's the Fat Bear Week? It's kind of so before a bear goes into hibernation, yeah. they're at their fattest. Yeah. Because obviously they that that fat has to last them the whole winter. Yeah, yeah. I'm basically in my fat bear week. I am burrowing in for autumn. <laughs> I'm sort of gathering. I bought some DVDs. Oh yeah. I'm 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 cooking more. Yeah. I'm batch cooking things, putting them in the freezer. Oh, I'm really? really settling in. I'm feeling very level. Coco, <laughs> I, I'm loath to remind you of this, but you are not able to hibernate. We have a <laughs> weekly podcast to do. Uh, the other thing I need to tell you is that what? my mum has shown me how to make a turnip curry. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So you remember there was that thing with Teresa Coffey being like, we need to eat more British food. Let's all eat turnips. Yeah. And everyone was like, why did you have to pick that? Why couldn't you pick kale or something nice? Yeah. Picking turnips gives this, conjures up some image of like the Victorian poor left to only eat bread and turnips. Yeah, right. right. Which is kind of actually in keeping with the times. Yeah. But nonetheless, it turns out turnips, tasty. So what, what's <laughs> happened is the government said we need to eat more turnips and your mother has reverted to, <laughs> let's face it, delicious South Asian stereotype yeah, and gone, yeah. well, if we're going to eat it, we'll make it taste good. <laughs> yeah. We're not just going to eat boiled turnips. Oh, no. Does it taste good? It, honestly, I was surprised when she told me. Can you share your mum's turnip <laughs> recipe? Oh, no, because you know how it is with, with the aunties? Their recipes are not useful for the world because it would be like, bit of this when it looks nice, Yeah, good. enough, enough, <laughs> yeah. enough of that. My yeah. grandmother always says, enough. It's how much of it? Enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very pointless for us. <laughs> um, how are you anyway? Yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. You eating I, uh, any turnips? Or? No, I've eaten no turnips. <laughs> okay. I, I watched a three and a half hour Martin Scorsese film about how white people are evil. I've had a great week. And did it just confirm all your suspicions? Or? Oh, it confirmed all my suspicions. <laughs> oh, it You're confirmed so high them all. The last, I, do you know what I watched on Sunday night? Cocaine Bear. That's what I watched. <laughs> Maybe that's why I've been thinking about bears, actually. That makes sense. <laughs> so you've had a bear based week? <laughs> Bear based. You were talking am... about fat bears and cocaine bears. Um, if you were listening last week, you'll know that we were expecting to be joined by Scotland's first minister, Hamza Youssef. However, he's had to cancel because he's busy dealing with the devastating flooding caused by Storm Babette. If you did send in a question for him, don't worry, we'll keep hold of them and then we'll, we'll use them when he comes in. Yeah, he's uh, he's doing his job and uh, obviously all of our thoughts with everybody who's affected by the storm is absolutely miserable. So... 
On the day that we record, it's exactly one year since Rishi Sunak became uh, Prime Minister. He failed in his first tilt of the leadership, was beaten by Liz Truss, who managed 44 days in the job, failing famously to outlast a lettuce. And he was elected the new leader of the Conservative Party on October the 24th, 2022, becoming our first Asian Prime Minister. And standing outside of Downing Street, he made this bold promise to the British people. This government will have integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level. Trust is earned, and I will earn yours. I will always be grateful to Boris Johnson for his incredible achievements as Prime Minister, and I treasure his warmth and generosity of spirit. And I know he would agree that the mandate my party earned in 2019 is not the sole property of any one individual. It is a mandate that belongs to and unites all of us. Very little of that has aged well. Praising Boris Johnson, that's not aged well. Boris Johnson's allies definitely can agree on one thing, and that is they don't think Rishi Sunak earned that mandate and they don't think it was a mandate for the Conservative Party. They think it was very specifically a mandate for Boris Johnson. He said that he was going to restore trust and integrity, but then he gave jobs to Dominic Raab and Gavin Williamson, who both had to leave their post. Suella Braverman, through some miracle or cursed monkey paw that she purchased, (laughs) was reinstated by Sudak to a job that she had had to leave over a data breach a week before. She has then been on a sort of rampage with a series of just horrific remarks about immigrants and migrants. She tries to jostle for position uh, as the you know next leader of the Conservative Party. Sunak's position is so weak that he is unable to rein her in, or perhaps he's simply unwilling to rein her in. In which case, you have to ask serious questions about what the value is of having the first Prime Minister of Colour if he won't stand up against policies that discriminate against people of colour and marginalised groups. In terms of his five pledges, uh, he uh, is going to struggle to get anywhere with the Stop the Boats pledge. He's going to struggle to get anywhere in terms of uh, reducing NHS waiting numbers. It remains to be seen if he's going to be able to get debt down. He has managed to halve inflation, though even when that pledge was made, a lot of experts at the time said it was a spectacularly low bar to clear. And it remains to be seen whether he's going to be able to get government debt down. In terms of his... uh, political standing. He's lost a string of by-elections. His approval ratings are in the toilet. It's been an awful year. But just on a personal level, I would say that one of his most toxic legacies that he's going to leave this country is him trying to turn the climate crisis, which is a matter of science, into a cultural war and a wedge issue because he is ultimately a craven, stupid and venal man. There is no level he will not stoop to in name of his own personal ambition. I think he's an absolute fucking disgrace and Rishi uh, as one bafflingly over-promoted under-talented Asian man to another you fucked it also Nish don't forget what's he done to full length trousers (laughs) I wear crop trousers all the time and I I show my ankles in shame now (laughs) that's the worst thing he's done that's the worst thing he's done he's ruined crop trousers for me (laughs) 
Here at Crooked Media, we love Karayuma and their comfortable, cool, sustainably made sneakers. Crooked loves them so much that we've just released our second collab. It's a love it or leave it sneaker. Comes in pink and black and has fun designs on them. We're gearing up for the winter season, so now's the perfect time to step up your shoe game with super comfortable sneakers, aka trainers, crafted with consciously sourced materials. Plus, Cariuma plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest for each pair purchased. Head to crooked.com forward slash store to grab a pair. Coco's wearing some right now. <laughs> They're very comfy. I'm comfortable. Rishi Sunak was in Israel last week having discussions on opening up humanitarian routes for a crisis that continues to bring devastation to civilians in both territories. The World Health Organization reported just this morning that there have been nearly 200 attacks on healthcare services. There are also growing concerns of fuel and emergency supplies running out. We may be a few thousand miles away, but the effects continue to be felt here. Downing Street confirmed this week that at least 12 British nationals are known to have died, either in or since the 7th of October attack by Hamas, with five people still missing. Hamas is described as a terrorist organisation by the UK and many other governments. Some of the British-based families spoke of their grief at a press conference in London on Tuesday. It's uh, like living in a nightmare. Um, the pictures keep running in front of my eyes. Um, I feel guilty for eating, I feel guilty for sleeping in my own bed, I feel guilty for playing with my children or covering my children at night. It's really confusing, it's like a psychological torture for us, the families, hearing that they're releasing this one or this one. We want them all, all of them back and we want all of them back now together. That was Ofri Bibas-Levy, whose brother Yardin was taken by Hamas, along with his wife Shiri and their two children. According to the health ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, more than 5,000 Palestinians, nearly half of them children, have been killed in Gaza since Israel launched retaliatory airstrikes. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed, most in the attacks more than two weeks ago, and there is still no ceasefire in sight. More than 100,000 people joined a pro-Palestinian protest in central London at the weekend, while thousands of people attended a rally in support of Israel in Trafalgar Square. So we're joined now by Sasha Deshmukh, who is the chief exec of the human rights organisation Amnesty International UK. He's also led the Children's Aid Charities UNICEF UK and War Child. Thank you so much for joining us, Sasha. Thank you. Um, so listen, you know, on this podcast, we always want to look at solutions. And we know that this issue is something that our audience, that we ourselves care a lot about. And being on social media, one of the things that comes up quite a lot is this, you know, uh, is the call to give aid, whether it be to uh, Medical Aid uh, Palestine, the Red Cross. There's, there's there's many others. My very first question for you is the, the, the aid that's going in at the moment, how much is it and is it enough? So if you look back at the history uh, in Gaza in particular, you're looking at a 16-year blockade of Gaza, and that meant that uh, the United Nations Trade and Development uh, Council has has the conference, excuse me, has said that 80% of people in Gaza were living uh, dependent on aid even before the current crisis. Two thirds of people were living in poverty, and back in 2008, Gaza was dependent on around two billion US dollars worth of aid. But even in 2022, so before this crisis, that had dropped to about 250 million dollars. Oh wow! Much less than uh, really could 
uh, support people living in any kind of comfort at all long before this crisis began. So I think the the unfortunately, sadly, the decade over a decade long, 16 years long blockade of Gaza has meant that it has a civilian population who are dependent on aid and aid is absolutely critical for day-to-day life, for any kind of safety, for any kind of healthy living in Gaza and has been for many, many years. And what, what and what's your, your take on the... The assertion that actually if you give aid, it doesn't go to the people that need it most. Well, there are many reputable, um, well-organised aid organisations working in Gaza. I clearly work for a human rights organisation now, but you you mentioned that previously I've worked for uh, some large aid organisations and I obviously now work with a large number of uh, aid organisations in different places around the world. I know speaking to them that they have staff who are dedicated, who are delivering aid of different kinds. They have doctors on the ground. They have healthcare workers on the ground. They have people distributing aid. um, And they have for many years uh, in Gaza, as well as obviously in other uh, areas of the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, They have people who are sadly currently in Gaza under some of the greatest threat given what's happening, that any of us have seen to aid workers anywhere. Mm. So I think that there is clearly a critical role for aid. And one thing I would like to say absolutely clearly, absolutely clearly, is that there is never a justification for a civilian population being denied food, being denied healthcare, being denied water. There is never a justification for that under international law. And there's never a justification for that, I believe, thinking as a humanitarian either. It, uh, there's um, Food and water is getting in. Fuel is proving to be a sticking point in negotiations. And the need for fuel is hugely pressing because hospitals are unable to run without it. And the UN has said that it would have to end its operations if no more is delivered. Israel is claiming that Hamas is hoarding fuel and keeping it from its own people. How do you see that situation playing out? Because it's it's clear that fuel does need to reach Gaza. It's not just water. It's not just food. It is power that's essential for services such as healthcare. And Israel has occupying uh, responsibilities when it comes to Gaza and the other occupied Palestinian territories. Those responsibilities extend to the protection of the civilians with those, those areas. That includes the protection of services like healthcare, which are dependent on, on power. You know, I've talked to doctors um, who, are, who are in Gaza and other areas in, in the occupied Palestinian territories, but in Gaza, who've told me about their fears of incubators turning off imminently. Um, and, and yet that is something clearly that does require power, that does require fuel. And we all have a duty, but in particular, any country that is an, an occupying power does have a duty to the civilian population that includes the protection of healthcare, that includes the protection of other services that are dependent on fuel. Those aren't just matters of opinion. Those are, those are matters of international responsibility and international law. 
So, Sasha, I just want to ask you about what you think of how the political establishment has responded to this crisis. The prime minister and the leader of the opposition are coming under increasing pressure to back calls for a ceasefire. Here's a former guest on this podcast, SNP's deputy leader at Westminster, Mary Black, questioning Sunak at PMQs. Yesterday, the UN warned that hospitals in Gaza had just 48 hours of fuel left to keep their electricity going. That was 28 hours ago. The electricity runs out tonight. Now, we have a human responsibility to all the people in Gaza, but we have a particular responsibility for UK citizens, some of whom are in those hospitals with no food, no water, no medicine and no way out. So I want to ask the Prime Minister, how much worse does the situation have to get before he will join us in calls for a humanitarian ceasefire? Meanwhile, Labour leader Keir Starmer is coming under pressure from within his own ranks. More than 150 Muslim Labour councillors have written to him demanding he call for a ceasefire in Gaza. You know, we've seen some of the biggest protests the UK has seen in a really, really long time. It feels like, from where I'm sitting, that the people have one opinion and the political establishment have another. Are you able to tell me... What's left to do? Where are we with a ceasefire? I guess anyone who is focused on human rights would always ask themselves two broad questions about about the call for a ceasefire. Does the situation where you are now mean that if there were a ceasefire, it would massively benefit one side in a military conflict over another? And the second question you ask is, would a ceasefire aid in the provision of humanitarian aid aid in support for the most basic elements of human rights, people's ability to actually continue to live and continue to, to, to have health, continue to, to uh, you know, uh, eat, etc. Um, I think in this case, we can see that there are strong arguments, very strong arguments for um, why a ceasefire could be the right thing for now, absolutely. And I think that What's critical in that is it's not just a call for a ceasefire. It would need to also be a moment that the international community is absolutely clear that all parties must adhere to international law. That means that there should not be any continued hostage taking. There should never have been hostage taking, but clearly hostages should be returned. But it also means that actions such as the blockade cannot continue because or or actions such as calls for mass population to move from one part of Gaza to the other, which arguably uh, is a form of forced displacement, which again is a contravention of of, of international law. So if there is a ceasefire, which can be critically important for the safety, immediate health of, of, of people, of course it can. It shouldn't just be a ceasefire, not accompanied by, I think, the international community saying, right, this is a moment where we need these critical first steps to happen, if there's going to be even a chance of a road out of this moment and the chance of this moment being one which starts to address decades-long roots causes to, to the conflict that have affected so many civilians horrifically on all sides. In terms of... Um individual protesters' rights within the UK, I think there's still some confusion about what the Public Order Bill has changed in terms of uh, individual protesters' rights. What what advice would you give uh, anyone protesting who does find themselves uh, dealing with the police? 
Um, so a few things to say on this. Obviously, Amnesty did have deep concerns about the Public Order Bill or Public Order Act um, that was passed uh, and, and that did uh, change many hundreds of years of British tradition and law surrounding the right to protest. Having said that, what I would be saying to uh, to people now is that you do still have a right to protest. And actually, I would also say to politicians of all parties that they should respect the rights of, and not just the rights, sorry, the duties, excuse me, of police um, to be properly applying the law, should not be trying to put any pressure on those police over and above the powers that the law the law gives. Um, there is good advice available, and actually you can find pointers to that quite well if you are considering organising a protest or participating in a protest that talk about the ways in which you can um, organise protests uh, safely. It's important that people have the ability to express their views. That does not mean, though, that a protest can contravene laws around areas such as hate crimes, etc. But those are well established in the law. And I think this is where politicians in particular need to be careful. The law has been carefully and well drafted when it comes to areas such as as, uh, hate speech and hate crime. Police and the courts are the right place for the adjudication of that. There is no role for politicians trying to express over and above what the law says, what may or may not be people's rights in in relation to protest. If there is one thing you could say to our listeners, i.e. if you care about this crisis, this is one thing you should do today, what would that be? It's absolutely important and critical to be speaking out about crimes against international law, about war crimes, Whoever has committed those crimes, mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. Hamas and armed and, and other armed groups, but also even if by our allies or friends, we must speak out if we're going to um, be showing the kind of leadership as a country that we need to. I think people should be saying that clearly uh, to their to their political leaders, um, whether that is through. Uh, writing to them or whether that's through supporting um, campaigns of organisations like ourselves. The other thing I would say is that there are, you know, many excellent organisations, many of them, uh, you know, charities and NGOs that will be familiar to, to people listening to this, who have been for years doing incredible humanitarian work. Now more than ever, those organisations need your help. Some of the people who are working and running those organisations are not just at the moment thinking about how to maximise the support they can give to civilian populations who faced appalling appalling circumstances over the last uh, few days. They're literally worrying about and having to deal with questions of the safety of their, their staff, of the colleagues that they have on the ground, the family members of them. Um, that's not unheard of for organisations providing emergency aid around the world. But I'd say in my experience, that's pro- this is probably one of the more severe uh, situations that aid organisations are, are facing that, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that Gaza in particular is such a concentrated place. If there are even pennies or pounds that anyone can give to support people who are trying to do work on the ground, uh, now more than ever, they need your help. Right. Thank, thank you so much. much, Sasha. We really appreciate your time. And thank you very much for talking us through this. Thank you. Thank you. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. So bruised from two by-election losses this week and hounded by questions of when Rishi Sunak will call a general election, the government nonetheless staggers on. On the House of Commons agenda this week, the much-trumpeted Renters Reform Bill was back for its second reading and it was the first chance for MPs to debate it. The bill would make it illegal for landlords and agents to refuse to rent to people on benefits or with children. And most importantly, it would abolish Section 21 no-fault evictions, which allows a landlord to get a court order to remove a tenant from their property without needing a reason. So back in May, in our third episode of this podcast, we celebrated the arrival of the Renters Reform Bill as a victory for tireless campaigners who'd been calling on it for for years, really. Um, But despite the bill passing its second reading in the Commons this week without a hitch, we wanted to return to it as there appears to have been some backsliding, very crafty on that all-important banning of no-fault evictions. Yeah, Housing Secretary Michael Gove wrote to backbench Tory MPs 68 of whom are themselves landlords, to say that the government won't implement the abolition of Section 21s until sufficient progress has been made to improve the court system, effectively kicking it into the long grass, something the National Residential Landlords Association has claimed as a huge win following extensive lobbying. And where was Michael Gove yesterday? He just happened to be speaking at the National Residential Landlords Association conference. So what happens now? To help us answer that is Toby Lloyd. He's an independent housing policy consultant. In his previous role as a special advisor on housing to Prime Minister Theresa May, he persuaded her to propose banning Section 21 orders in the first place. Welcome, Toby. Thank you. Um, We'll obviously discuss Section 21, but I guess the first question to ask is, how did you become a Tory spad, given that you are not at all. <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was a surprising career move. We'll, 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 we'll admit that. I was I was head of policy at Shelter for right. seven years, and we'd done a lot of campaigning on the private rented sector. In fact, abolishing Section Twenty One was like top of our, of our of our list there, and we got nowhere. Bluntly, I mean, we spent 
years trying to get housing up the agenda. We really targeted the 2015 election and we thought we did a really good job. We had a massive advertising campaign. We got it, you know, up to, it was number four on the issues facing the country kind of um, yeah. opinion poll tracker. So, we, yeah, we thought they'd done a great job. New government comes in, first thing it says it wants to do, really big bill on housing. We think, hooray. And they introduced like the worst bill on housing we'd had in 30 years. Wow. Complete disaster. Oh, by do something, they mean make it worse. Yeah, well, <laughs> as it turned out, it's not enough just to get your issue up the agenda. You know, we had to actually persuade a conservative government to do the right things. Yeah. And it turned out that Shelter hadn't been as good at that as we thought. And, you know, bluntly, it's because it was full of people like me. It was full of kind of urban lefties yeah. that um, don't naturally talk to conservatives or don't talk in a way that they're willing to listen to. So I spent quite a lot of time just trying to change Shelter's message so that we could get a conservative government to listen. Um, wasn't even talking about private renting really it was more about how you get houses built and yeah. social housing um, and it worked so well that they, uh, they they listened and said yeah okay well we'll think about that and then they phoned me up the next day and said yeah would you like to come and be a special advisor to the Prime Minister wow so I kind of yeah you know, I did have a bit of a long dark night of the soul thinking <laughs> can, can I do this but then I had to have a word with myself think, hang on you spent seven years trying to get the government to listen now they say they want to listen what are you going to say no like, no I'd rather be ignored how did you change the messaging what does that involve I, I had a, I had a little bit of help from a very special friend Nish um, namely uh, Prince Charles oh I was not uh, yeah. wow no, no I was excited I thought you were going to say alcohol <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no um, I got invited to a, a launch event as you do in kind of policy well, you know, yeah. some, some, some other think tanks written another report on housing saying it's all, all, all a mess um, and this one happened to be by the Prince's Foundation right and it turned out it was this really posh dude in, in the palace um, where you, you do all the weird stuff they make you do when you meet royals. Where you, you, the yeah. handshakes yeah, and the bowing. Yeah, and, very yeah. odd. But at the speeches, they had all of these organisations, really kind of august establishment bodies like the National Trust and the Country Land and Business Association and you know, the Civic Forum. They're all very, very kind of respectable, Tory-friendly organisations. This was before the National Trust has suddenly become the Conservative Party's public enemy number one. <laughs> yeah, well, before the Conservative Party lurched so far into this, this kind of yeah, that's weird right, yeah. anti-wokery. But they were all saying the same thing that Shelter was. Yeah. So I just made me think, we're just missing a trick here. We're somehow, we're just talking to our own kind of lefty bubble. Mm. Right. And we're not communicating to the people we actually need to communicate, who happen to be the government. Um, so I had a bit of an epiphany and just looked at all Shelter's output and it was... It was all kind of big red banners, lots of photos of concrete tower blocks and kind of inner city urban families. And you think, well, am I surprised that this doesn't particularly appeal to conservatives? All the language is about kind of social justice and, right, yeah. you know, fighting the power. And you think, well, again, it's, a, it's not really designed to appeal to Tories. So, so I just changed all of, all of the, the branding. I didn't change right. the policy and you can't do that. We're trying to get them to understand complicated failings in the land market and why you need to spend more money in social housing. Do you just put everyone in tweed? <laughs> no, that thing that would have been a bit unsubtle, but I did change the colour. Oh, really? Change the colours were kind of barber jacket green. Oh, just, really? I got, I got special permission to vary the shelter brand guidelines for one report only. <laughs> <laughs> and I included photos, not of kind of concrete tower blocks, but of Prince Charles's developments. You know, right, yeah. nice kind of comforting thatched roofs and, you know, old villages and stuff because... Actually, Shelter's not there to defend brutalist architecture. That's yeah, not its yeah. job. It's there to get social housing built and to end homelessness. Um, and I just changed the, the pictures and the colour. So the policy remained the same? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's, I mean, that is an incredible lesson. What was it like, I mean, in 2018, we all remember it, we all lived through it. What was it like being in government at that point? 
and trying to get something that wasn't related to Brexit done. The really weird thing about it was just how kind of calm, easy and nice it was. Right, yeah. Which like, was not what I was expecting. I was expecting kind of like <laughs> thick of it levels of kind of screaming and kind of long nights and desperate panic. I think it's because Brexit was taking up all of the energy. So that end of the corridor was probably hell to work in. But right. the kind of social policy bit, which, you know, Theresa May was keen to have a social policy agenda and a domestic agenda, but they just left left us to get on with it and just quietly kind of propose things. In the few minutes you'd get every month, there'd be kind of break in the news agenda where for one day it wasn't going to be about Brexit. And a kind of message would come down saying, like, we've got a day for the domestic <laughs> agenda. Have you, got, have you got anything we could do? And at that point, you'd say, yeah, yeah, just do this. And they go, right, right thanks, yeah. great, we'll do that. So there was an advantage, effectively, yeah, yeah, in everyone it was, being it was, distracted by Brexit. It was actually a good opportunity for kind of sneaking more progressive ideas through the system than would otherwise have, have got through. So wow. is that how the scrapping of Section 21 sort of came to be, this break in the Brexit cloud? Well, that maybe is a Brexit silver lining. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. Benefits of Brexit, right there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm surprised they're not talking about it more often. <laughs> and so what was the response at the time? Um, well, it's exactly what you'd expect. The landlords um, were up in arms, but... Um, you know, the political logic was fairly clear. They weren't exactly going to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party anyway, so there wasn't the kind of Conservatives wouldn't lose anything politically with with that backlash. Um, you know, the sector was the housing sector was pleased but kind of suspicious. You know, will this ever happen? Um, because everyone knew at that point that Theresa May was not not going to be Prime Minister for very long. Right. Yeah. You can announce something like this, but it's going to have to be legislated. You know, there was no hope she was going to pass a bill before she left, so people didn't really think it would happen. And the amazing thing is, it survived. It survived two changes of prime minister, six changes of housing minister, um, and what four years of parliamentary back and forth. So, so how are you feeling this week, seeing that there's a bit of a backslide? How does that make you feel personally? And also, are you feeling um, hopeful that that this this scrapping of Section Twenty One will someday happen soon? I'm, I'm feeling really positive about it. Actually, yeah. the the backslide is is not that big a deal okay. in my view. There's always a there's always what's called commencement dates issues with legislation. Everyone gets very excited about the bill passing, but it, well, there's always a clause in it which says this won't come into effect until the Secretary of State says go. And sometimes that can be years afterwards. In fact, often it never happens at all. A lot of bills that people fight tooth and nail over are actually ne- you know they get passed eventually, and you know governments fall and MPs resign, and they never get commenced. It never actually comes into force. It happens all the time. So it's not a big deal that there's going to be a bit of a delay before commencement. It's normal. Mm-hmm especially given that there's a general election in, in the next year, it's, it'd be very unlikely for this bill to be brought into force before that election anyway. So it'll probably be a decision for the next government. In terms of jumping to the potential of a Labour government next time around, how do you feel about this bill? I, I want to talk about Labour's housing policy in a second, but let's start with this specific bill. Like in terms of Section 21, you still feel, you feel pretty confident that it's it's going to, this is going to happen. Yeah, I think the, the getting the legislation passed is a critical first step. The fact that both main parties are supporting it means it will go through in, in, in law. Um, yeah, sure, it'd be great if, if this government commenced it rather than waiting for the next one, but it's, given the timescales, it's not particularly a, a big deal either way. The really, I mean, the really good news is that if it comes, I think this is a change that if it's done by a Conservative government, it's much more likely to stick. Yeah. What we don't want with this sort of thing is it being a kind of political football, yeah. as it has been. You know, we've we've seen private rented regulation in this country veer from like the most draconian kind of overregulated kind of controlled in the world to the most liberal free market wild west unprotected mm. sector in the world and back again. You know, several times. Um, 
neither, you know, and that's partly why the debate gets so hot, is because we're used to very extreme swings. Actually, most countries have something kind of vaguely in the middle, so it's not that big a deal. Getting this change, this important first step, Section 21, repealed by a conservative government, just means it's going to stick. Right? Yeah. Because you've, you've actually got some cross-party consensus, and I, I think that's massive. You know, I'd, I'd rather if it was being commenced you know, tomorrow, because you know, any, any delay is too much. You know, people, someone gets a Section 21 eviction every 15 minutes in this Jeez. country. Right? And with rents going up, it's going to happen more and more. So the sooner the better. Any delay is essentially cruel. But in terms of Parliament, that is just, it's, not, it's, it's not the end of the world. Well, this week we've seen kind of, as you described there, you know, troubling reports from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. They have found that last year 3.8 million people were destitute, which means that, you know, they lack the basics to stay warm, dry, clean and fed. Housing plays a really big part of that. I watched a horrible Channel 4 report yesterday oh. where they interviewed a, a man who, you know, he was a mechanic. He got ill. Uh, he received universal credit, just shy of £900. He was just about managing and then his landlord put the rent up to £620. That's insane. That's two thirds of his income. And he was left with £30 a month to to essentially feed himself. Um, it was a horrifying report. And I just had this moment going, how on earth can a landlord do that? Now, this is a really long way of me saying outside of this rant, which I could do for a long time on housing. Is this going to go far enough, Section 21? And what's next? What's the next battle we need to have? Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, Section 21 on its own is not enough, but it is a really critical first step yeah. because the security it gives you allows lots of other things to happen. You know, as long as you know, we've got there's lots of detail in there we've got to get right and we've got to make sure the grounds for eviction aren't too easy. You know, you don't want to let it in through the back door. There's a critical point about about rent rises because if you if the landlord can just say, I'm not evicting you, I'm just raising the rent to a million pounds a week. Yeah, right. Then you know, that's the same. So you've got you've, you know, you've got to make sure all the policy detail is correct and then let me close off all those loopholes. Um but once you have that, that gives tenants much greater negotiating strength, say to landlords, actually, you know what? No, you're not gonna raise the rent, you know a million pounds a week I, I will teach the rent tribunal I'm not afraid that you're going to throw me out mm. you, know, you can do that now but no one dares because landlord will just throw you out I will complain about that awful damp that's been you know, yeah. plaguing my house for years you know we worry about damp in the social housing sector rightly you're three times more likely to have mould and damp in a private rented home it's by far the worst quality tenure mm. in the country and the most expensive and the least secure now dealing with all three of those things is difficult but if but actually starting with the security is the best because that allows you to then start getting into the other ones. And this bill does do some of that as well. It's the decent home standard is going to be extended to the private rental sector finally, which is a, I think will be a really important first step in trying to raise those standards. You know, there's more we could do. Um, I think energy efficiency is going to be the next mm -hmm. big one. Yeah. It's a real shame that Rishi Sunak rode back on that one as part of his, you know, getting rid of the green crap yeah, the yeah. other week. Because um, again, it's, it's by far the least energy efficient housing is in the most expensive private rental sector. I think it's about um, fourteen percent of of all private rented sector homes are in the like the least efficient EPC band E and homes, and that co that costs ordinary people it costs month. a fortune because every, you know it means that their their energy bills uh, have gone through the roof and they're just leaking heat. Beep. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so what about rent controls? Da, 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 da. I'm well, up for it. <laughs> that first, I mean, there's lots of different types of rent control, right? Okay. So the first kind is actually what we've already talked about. You need to have that uh, some level of stopping landlords just evicting yeah. um, by raising the rent to a million pounds, right? So you need that kind of minimal rent control just to give people security. Beyond that, you know, you can go for uh, forms of rent control that I personally support where you just limit the increases. You know, yeah, right. either to an index. At the moment, there is the, the, the rule, which is never enforced, but will be now with Section 21 going, that says you can only raise the rent by the going market rate. Unfortunately, that can be pretty steep and has been recently. So, you know, really you'd want that to be more like an index like inflation or ideally yeah. wage inflation. So it's not, you know, it's not getting more expensive for people. And then there's the third kind of rent control, which is the, the kind of one where the government literally comes around, looks at your house and says, I think this yeah. you can you can charge this much rent for it. Not many people really go advocating that anymore. And it's quite intrusive. It's quite complicated and bureaucratic. So mm. it's more about actually controlling rents in tenancy and giving tenants more security. And then you can actually have a proper negotiation about what the rent should be. I mean, house building obviously plays a massive role in that. You know, we don't have um, as much supply of rented properties as we we probably could. Keir Starmer's made a big play about he's going to be the the party, that next government will be the party of house building. I mean, what's your take on it? Do you feel that these planning reforms are actually going to do anything? I was really encouraged, actually. Um, right. I mean, okay, confessing, I'm, I'm a housing geek and this is this is my thing. But I, I, the fact geek that this... out, Toby. You're in safe space. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice to know. Uh, I think, I, think, to be honest, got? I um, definitely think we should encourage people who know about things to talk about them. I feel like that's yeah. the one. <laughs> I mean, you can always edit it out afterwards. Right? Um, they, yeah, I, I was really encouraged because, and I've been banging out this stuff for a long time. In fact, that's what I was doing at Shelter. I was trying to convince the government that there's better ways to do house building to get more homes built. Just saying, tear up the planning system and let the volume house builders rip will not do it. That's what we've been doing for 40 years. And we've been building fewer and fewer homes. They've got worse and worse quality and more and more expensive. It just does not work. I'm a big fan of markets in lots of ways, but they're not very good at land. Yeah. You you actually, Mm -hmm. that's why even the most free market libertarian countries have 
quite tight land use planning controls. Right. You just have to because the land is fixed supply. So it's kind of the, the, yeah, that's it's right. as simple as that. It's just like there's, there's, <laughs> you can't make more land. No, no, and yeah. it, so that's that's it. End of story. And that's why you know people bang on about Singapore on Thames. I think brilliant. In Singapore, the government owns all the land, almost. They control all of the house building. They control the rents. <laughs> it's the most kind of socialist housing policy imaginable. Every time I hear somebody talk about Singapore on Thames, I sort of feel like, have you Googled Singapore? <laughs> like, have you actually just looked at the basic terms by which Singapore is run? And, and, and the reason why they do that is because they know that if you want to have a free market, open trading economy, which they do, you have to control the property market or it will just eat your economy. Yeah. And that's what we've seen in this country. Housing has just eaten our economy. People spend the vast bulk of their income on it. Private renters typically spend 30, 40% of their income just paying the rent. You know, we, all of our wealth is tied up in housing. Um, you know, that's what people say is my pension. It's a crap pension because you can't like cash it out very easily. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't work very well as a pension. It means that all of our, our financial sector is just geared towards mortgages. That's all they mm. do. They just give mortgage lending because it's easier than, you know, awkward, messy things like growing businesses. Yeah. In Germany, where they have the other way around, banks spend all their time actually funding businesses. And guess what? Their productivity in their um, industrial sector is a lot stronger. So, you know, housing is the kind of central problem of the, of the UK economy. Um, and getting the planning bit right is part of that. But it isn't just a, a matter of tearing up the system and letting the, letting the volume builders go. Keir Starmer's stuff was, was good, actually, because he was talking about taking you know, a confident state-led approach to where homes need to go. You know, if you need to do big building at scale, that's got to be organised by the government. So listen, if you were back in number 10 mm. with the PM's ear, what solutions would you be pushing? Um, well, I'd be pushing exactly what they've kind of hinted at on the, on the house building side. So, you know, strategic state organised. Doesn't, state doesn't have to do everything. There's plenty of room for the private sector, for the voluntary sector, for communities to like do house building. In fact, we need a more diverse mixed economy there. But the state needs to organise it. Yeah. You know, decide, actually, we are going to expand or, you know, London or Manchester or whatever in that direction. It's going to be there. We're going to override, you know, people, some people are going to be upset about it. Tough. You know, it's a national decision. Um, and there's a lot that then follows from that, that, that that we'd need to get right. But, you know, reasonably encouraged that they're thinking in the right direction there. Private rental sector, yeah, continue. Like, carry on. Get that get that decent home standard enforced. Get the, the Section 21 um, repeal properly enforced. You know, have, make sure landlords have to register. We don't, even, we don't even ask landlords to tell anyone that they're a landlord. You know, it's, Which it's, seems unfathomable, right? Especially when you consider how much of the nation's wealth is tied up in property. Yeah. And we're just, you know, it's kind of no questions asked. It's crazy, right? So no wonder we don't get much tax from, from that sector. Because, <laughs> you know, they basically have to beat down the door of the revenue saying, please, please take my money. You've got uh, certainly, I think, an interesting career trajectory. And maybe you're the first person that we spoke to that has had this sort of trajectory. And it's exactly the sort of thing people say they want more of in government, which is specialists and experts. It, uh, the current, current housing secretary made a very famous comment suggesting he was somewhat expert sceptic, but I don't think he was necessarily speaking for the country in that in that remark. What did you learn about going from, uh, I guess, working in the kind of, working in the charity sector, working in kind of trying to pressure and affect policy? What did you learn about making that switch into actually making policy? Take the opportunity if you can. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, this was a collapsing chaotic conservative government 
which I had kind of no friends within. You know, it felt like that was an impossible job to do anything. You just and on I, your own in the, yeah. in, the yeah. in the canteen. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got and I got far more done in fourteen months there than I did in ten years of campaigning wow. Uh, wow. from the outside, right? Because just once you're on the inside, you can just get stuff done. So, de- firstly, definitely take the opportunity if you get it. Yeah. Um. Because there's just no substitute for being close to real power. D- did you get on with Teresa? Um. Yeah, I mean, she was, she was perfect, perfectly nice, perfectly civil. Toby, you're not giving me what I want. What I want anyway. is now that you're out of government, I want you to spill the tea. Um, <laughs> Give us some tea. <laughs> I'm, give, I'm giving you the truth, Kaka. What, what, what can I say? Right, she the was, truth. Uh, truth. I mean, I think I must have met her maybe five or six times in that whole time. Yeah. yeah so it's not, it's not like we know each other well. Um, she was always perfectly nice, listened carefully, amazingly diligent. She really read the brief. Right. I mean, alarmingly so. One of the things I got when I was in there was the um, the, the first draft of the report on building safety following the Grenfell fire, which is, you know, enormous inch-fat document with real technical expertise. A lot of it was completely over my head and I'm supposed to be the expert yeah, yeah. advising her. You know, I, I, I did my best, summarised it in a note and gave it to her. She read the entire thing and made careful notes. She was, you know, really almost almost too diligent, you know. That's actually but, nice to hear that. But, but she was very, very thorough and and considered i lived in the vicinity of grenfell when it happened and it was sort of it sort of lived as this kind of shadow on the skyline around the whole of west london do you think we've adequately learned the lessons of what happened no because the cladding still is still in it's it's because and quite apart from just being this appalling tragedy what it immediately revealed is just this incredibly complicated web of failure that just reaches absolutely everywhere Mm. into the the whole of the building safety system, the whole of the way that housing is managed, the whole of the way that social tenants are listened to or more importantly not listened to, you know, just, and every, you know, when I got to government, this was a year after Grenfell, so they, you know, the, the department was just setting up new teams all the time because everything they, every stone they overturned revealed another kind of mess of horribly complicated failures that had been going back decades. I just also want to quickly just circle back to something you said about Theresa May and about being detail-focused, and you thought that that might even almost be a weakness in a prime minister. Why is that? I mean, to be fair, if, in, if, you, want, if, you, want, if you want me to be rude about her if anything I think that's a failing in a Prime Minister she, she was too thorough right? she had bigger stuff to worry about than reading the small print of a, an inch thick document I don't want you to be rude safety. about her I just you want know. to know what happened I want you to be rude about her <laughs> <laughs> no. it's just funny isn't it because you know there is a, a, a kind of gentleman's agreement if you work in these places that you obviously you can't divulge the little goss the the culture of the space right like, I'm a journalist myself and you know I, I wouldn't come onto a podcast and tell everyone about like the chats yeah. we have around the water cooler but um... I do do that about comedy <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why I'm wildly unpopular <laughs> Look, I, I, the thing about working down the street is not like working anywhere else in government most right. most of government is just I mean, it's just like another office right there's nothing particularly exciting or interesting about down the street is just bonkers because right. it's this weird weird place you know my office was you know clearly like a servant's bedroom with like six desks awkwardly squeezed into it and it doesn't it's a, it's a you know rickety old house with kind so of you're actually everywhere. working in yeah. physically in, in downing number street. 10 yeah oh right okay um, where you know it takes you it takes you a while to get your head around it because of just finding your way around because they've tried to squeeze all the kind of features you need for a modern office plus all the weird shit you need for the security services and everything into this kind of crumbling series of 18th century houses that have been badly knocked together so wow. it's the weirdest place to work like, uh, you know trying to find a meeting room like any office is impossible our main one was that was called the lift lobby which is like a little space at the top of the tiny little lift that squeezed in the building 
you'd be having a meeting there and some and a, and a, like, a woman with like shopping bags and four dogs would just walk <laughs> through your meeting room because that's the door to the chancellor's flat and it's his wife just coming home from the shops you know it's, it's, this is this is not normal yeah. um final question quick question Keir Starmer gets elected he calls you up he says Toby we're redo- we're just- I heard you on Pod Save the UK. And I, I thought you managed all the questions very deftly. <laughs> and you- I trust you won't slag me off. <laughs> Would you go back into government? Yeah, of course. Because as, as I said, you know, there's just no substitute for actually getting things changed. You know, however difficult, however compromising, however messy it is, you know, there's pretty much no problems that don't need the government to do something. And it's good to know there's experts like you out there. We only hope you get listened to a bit more. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Toby. Just time for a quick look into the mailbag, Coco, and it seems the number one concern of our listeners is how are you and your cat getting on? Uh, here's a voice note from Lally. Hi, team. Just wanted to say cats definitely do hold grudges. Um, our cat always sits on my partner's lap instead of my lap and will only resort to going on my lap if his isn't available. And even then, he will put a paw on my lap, look at me, and remember, and then move away. Love the show, by the way. We listen every week. Lally, uh, thank you for that voice note. Um, if you don't understand why this has happened, uh, last week, uh, Coco opened the show by revealing that uh, she had sat directly on her cat, and she was concerned that this might lead to her cat holding a grudge against her. Lally appears to have confirmed that cats do hold grudges. Coco, how are you feeling? Phone to just tell me. Yeah, no, they do hold grudges, mate. You fucked it. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Well, look, I mean, if, if everybody's interested, my cat and I, we seem to be getting on well and we're working through our issues. And I think, you know, uh, we, we, we we do continue as a unit. So that's good to know. But it is interesting because you, you this sounds like... Uh, <laughs> Like a celebrity after their spouse has been caught having an affair. We're working through these issues uh, as a partnership. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like that. But it's really easy to... You, you and your cat like Will Smith and Jada. Yeah. Well, let me try and put your mind at rest by reading you some comments from YouTube. Okay. Uh, at Tammy Lynn 8273 said, I actually sat on my cat once. I also sit like Nish does. The chair was dark brown and my cat was solid black. He was stunned and so was I. He was fine and lived to be 19. Aww, so everything's okay. fine. Just also to be clear, the way that I sit down is, we discussed this last week, Coco said part of the uh, bonus <laughs> was that she sits quite gently. So she did actually do too much damage to a cat. Whereas I said, the way that I sit down is I try and make my ass make contact with the chair as quickly as humanly possible. <laughs> you just sort of lose your bones. Yeah, and just I just fold that, into I like it. to just collapse into a chair. Um, there's another comment from at sharks two five seven one. My cat burrows under my duvet when she gets frightened, which is frequently. And yesterday I sat down full force niche style. <laughs> oh my, I can't believe that my name is now synonymous with just sitting down quickly. Actually, it completely fits that niche style would be a description of a way of sitting down. I, my true legacy is the la- is sitting down. Um, uh, I sat down full force niche style on my bed and felt something organic beneath my oh, bottom. Oh, God. It turns out it was my hot water bottle, but I did have a small heart attack for a moment thinking I had squashed the cat. Oh, my gosh. Also, we want to hear from you about a number of the serious issues raised by this podcast, <laughs> but we also want to know, do you sit Coco style or do you sit niche style? <laughs> The survey that you got won't run, but it's very important to the health of the nation. How much force do you apply 
from your buttocks to whatever receptacle it is you're sitting down on. Um, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. We love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514 And internationally, that's plus four four. Seven five one four six four four five seven two. We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed in this episode, or you can send in a question about British politics, or suggest something you'd like us to cover, or tell us if you sit <laughs> Coco style or Nish style. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop, with additional production support from Annie Keatsdall. Video editing was by Dan Hodgson, and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer Alex Bennett. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Nishta. Nishta. <laughs>